Chapter 20 Between You and Me I played music loud, music that I liked and she didn't. I worked out, I cleaned, I watched some stuff online. I existed in our house that morning spitefully pretending that Miri wasn't there, feeding motivational phrase entitlements to myself like children's vitamins. You only get one life. You're only responsible for your own happiness. The only person you can change is yourself. Single-celled and shamefully simple, the amoeba phase of human husband. I've never been uglier. Are you sure you don't want breakfast? Blink once for yes, twice for no. I'm thinking of going out for a bit. Would you like me to maybe pick you up a bedpan? I said those things to her that morning. As Miri lay there curled up, gone again in the white everything, I spoke to her like that. And when the phone rang, I sarcastically told her to not worry about it. Don't bother getting up. I'll answer it. Hello? Good, Sia said. You're home. Surprise. Mary Emma there too? Yes and no. Whatever. Both of you meet me for lunch in an hour. Mangy mongrels. I'm leaning towards no. Seriously, Remy, there's something I need to show you. It was an easy sell. Getting out of the house for a little while sounded just right to me. But the location didn't fit. You hate that place. You never eat there. Why there? Just trust me. See you in an hour, okay? Yeah. Okay. Compulsory, more as a courtesy than anything else, I asked Miri if she wanted to come. See you wants to have lunch, I told her. I'm gonna go. I have to get out of here for a while. Will you please come? I touched her shoulder and tried to be gentle. Please get up and come with me. But nothing. I changed clothes, grabbed my wallet and keys, and kissed Miri on the forehead. I had no idea. I see myself now, moving to the front door, and I will the ceiling to collapse. I wish for his legs to snap. I pretend an aneurysm behind his eyes. One blink and it pops. I pluck a vertebrae out of him. I want to shut him down completely. I know what page he's about to turn. I know where the story goes. Better to be dead on this side of the door than anything at all on the other. But he opens it. As I open the door, I yell into the house, I'll be back soon! Her first words of the day, so little I barely hear them. Please don't go. That's what she said to me. I pause. I think to do a number of other things, but I'm already out the door. It's already open. I'm already leaving. So that's what you should do, I tell myself. That's what's happening. So that's what happened. I love you, I say closing the door. I don't know if she heard me. Brightness, sound, movement, air. 
My senses respond to the outside world like time-lapsed de-evolution of a cave lizard. A very rude transition, but still a welcomed one. I'm not done rubbing my eyes and popping my ears to it when I see the moving truck parked in front of Sammy's old house. Movers are carrying furniture inside while a young girl stands watching. Agent Scrotch is with her. She looks 12 years old. I catch myself rubbernecking to the side of a girl that young holding a baby. Agent Scrotch finds my eyes and serves them back to me cold, chilled strangely in the mirrors of his glasses. His expression communicates something just between us, something frozen and happy and dark. I definitely don't want the details. I keep driving, sensing his eyes follow me around the corner. Forgetting I'm allowed to turn right on red, I wait for the light past the community entrance. It isn't until some moments later, watching the gate shrink away in the rear view, that I notice Dell's absence. His post is abandoned. Good for him. The city streets flicker mosaic anxiety through my mentals. The solemn, slow, and heavy energy of having been at home with Miri's sad moods for so long feels pulled like a tooth. The city is a sharp throb, a quickness that hurts my head. It hums like a mosquito lamp and smells like kerosene. Lights blink and tell people what to do. Their faces look animal and idiotic as they pass, little lives rushing toward their little interests. I hate them. In perfect compliment, like a flag flying over this terminal absurdity, Royal Troon's face looms above the whole of it. It seems he's now advertising household cleaning products. A huge billboard bearing his image and the phrase, Bleach, screams down at me. It makes me think about turning things white. No colors, all the colors, fuck it. I don't care. The next billboard I pass uses a very different approach in its request for attention. I catch the red light and have more time than needed to understand exactly what I'm looking at. There's a small crowd collected on the two opposite street corners. They're pointing at it, chatting and staring. What look to be city employees are waiting at the top for the slow pulley lift delivering supplies needed to paint over the vandalism. Snake body of the god of wisdom, Sammy's god's sake, is stretched across the bottom of the billboard, one end all the way to the other, faceless, a bag pulled down over his head. Behind him are two stenciled figures, both wearing suits, faceless as well. Their heads are replaced by two purpose symbols, crisp and clear. The piece is huge, filling the entire billboard. Lastly, in sloppy drips of fluorescent pink lettering, a raw juxtaposition to the cleanness of the rest, read the words, Don't get wise with us. Sia didn't have to put her name in the corner. Her signature is present in every line. Something in me feels incriminated by association. I keep my eyes pointed forward and drive the speed limit. As I pull into mangy mongrels, Though having no idea how to do so, I check to make sure I haven't been followed. This is ridiculous. Edging into a parking spot, I notice Dell standing out front, hands behind his back, 
serious-faced and rigid. For some reason, the sight helps calm me. I shut the door and lock the truck up. Damn, Dell. Looking sharp. Dell has on a fresh black tee, black athletic shorts, and brand new black tennis shoes. New eyewear, too. A single cupped goggle covers his eye, held by a black elastic strap circling his bald head. It looks like some kind of custom athletic goggle. Is that a prescription? I ask. He replies with a quick nod and continues to scan the parking lot. What are you doing here, Dell? Why are you just standing outside? He scans left, scans right, and settles on my face just long enough to answer, I'm protecting the lady. Protecting who? My answer comes from a rapping on the window behind Dell. Sia is trying to get my attention. She's sitting in a booth on the other side of the glass, waving for me to come inside. I ask Adele if he'll be joining us. He says he can't, that he's working, but thank you. The inside of Mangy Mongrels is overly air-conditioned, yet somehow gelatinously warm. It smells like salty hog, dried, then reapplied waitress sweat, dishwater coffee, and some vague illegality you can't quite guess. Sia sits in bold contrast to that last element, wearing her crime out loud, pink paint dried on her hands, and dressed in clothes decorated by every other shade of evidence. You are a fucking idiot. So you saw it then. She smiles. This is funny to you? I'm standing parentally tall at the edge of the booth. Not funny, fun. Very big difference. Oh, well, as long as you're having a good time. Sit down, please. See his eyes indicate the ripped vinyl cushions across the table from her. I take a seat. We remain silent, aiming our stares, having a contest of conflicting sentiments. You made a mistake, mine say, and you should be scared. I'm proud, hers reply, and I'm not afraid. Our showdown ends in a draw. Or close. I blink first. Why? I finally ask. Are you really that bored? Yes, of course I'm that bored. Like you aren't? I can't say anything. And him? She's talking about Dell, still standing beyond the window with his hands clasped behind his back. That was going nowhere good. No argument there. But, she continues, boredom had nothing, or almost nothing, to do with it. Look at this. She takes her phone from her purse, scrolls through it for a moment, then holds the screen across the table so I can see. And? All I'm looking at is an empty apartment, same color and cut as a million others. It's not what you see, it's what you don't see. She gives me an impatient look telling me to hurry up and get it. What isn't there? I'm growing frustrated. Should I soften my eyes? Is a dolphin going to appear out of the carpet fibers? What the fuck am I supposed to be focusing on? There's no blood, Remy. I take the phone from her hand and give a closer look. 
That's their place. The one they rented. No blood, no knives, no chair. Clean. I hand the phone back to Sia. And? Her face says she isn't able to comprehend my stupidity. I respond with the same expression returned. Seriously, what? What would you like for me to feel right now? My face becomes increasingly sarcastic, very mean. Oh my God, Sia, new carpet. Conspiracy, cover-ups. This calls for vandalism. Only street art can save us now. She looks hurt and ashamed to know me. Or more like she doesn't know me. Like I've just spit all over her face. She sits wearing it for a moment. You're a eunuch. Her retort begins as a whisper. You're an emasculate, emotionless. Getting louder, her words come amplifiedly chivalrous. They're our friends. What is wrong with you? He's your best friend. And what, Remy? You don't say anything? You don't do anything? With other customers in the restaurant tossing looks our way, a seasoned waitress, used to diffusing elevated volumes, approaches the table. She sits a glass of water in front of me and pours more into Sia's. It overflows and an ice cube escapes onto the table. She doesn't look at either of us. Y'all decide? Little pencil in the ready at her pad. No, I reply. Just another minute. I pretend to touch the menu, but she isn't looking, doesn't care. Take her time. And she moves on. Eunuch. Emasculant. I calmly steer us back, a contemptuously tempered reiteration of where we'd left off. Soft, but not apologetic. At least I'm doing something. Really? What is it that you're doing? My question is sincere. Not nothing. Eloquently stated. And suddenly it all becomes clear. Thank you. I'm still being mean. I want to know what happened to our friends, Remy. I do too. Our words are toned in truce. Common ground. Then allow me to elucidate. A new voice. Neither of us noticed Agent Scrotch enter the restaurant. Nor did we notice the absence of Dell outside our window. Wearing the exact suit as the figures on Sia's billboard, Agent Scrotch stands imposingly at the edge of our booth, both hands resting a firm grip on Dell's shoulders. Dell looks very small in front of him. He gives a defeated glance to Sia and me. I'm sorry. I failed you. Nonsense, Agent Scrotch assures him, giving Dell's shoulders an encouraging squeeze. The gesture is dishonest and threatening. You performed impressively, Dell. Agent Scrotch repositions Dell into the seat next to Sia and lowers himself down as Corral, squeezing them both in and blocking the exit. Seeming to appear out of nowhere, Agent Number Two does the same on my side of the booth, trapping me as well. Hello, Iram, he says, slapping my leg and squeezing my knee. Intimidatingly chummy. See ya, he nods. Dell? You all know number two. Agent Scrotch completes the introductions. 
He helps me do things. It's true, confirms number two, flashing a smile. I do that. Their banter is a show, meant to frighten casually. Scrotch's sunglasses are a black mirror splitting and warping my reflection, one of me in each lens. Number twos are the same, opaque and silvery dark, like the skin of a wet snake. They both look unnaturally clean. Cushioned as always in slow naivete, Dell keeps comfortable in this situation. He picks up one of the straws left by the waitress, pops it down, and slides the paper wrapping off. The table remains quiet as he folds it to a tiny crumble and places it in the melt water moting Sia's glass. We all watch as a piece of paper becomes wet. From the middle of this magic, allow you to elucidate? Dell is traveling Scratch back to his opening line. Do you know, really? Did you hurt Sammy and Haruki or take them away? And what of the doctor? Please be true. Dell looks back and forth between the two pairs of sunglasses, waiting for an easy answer. My eyes are still stuck on the straw paper. God, Scratch exclaims. You're just inspiring, Dell. Did you hear this little guy? His question is rhetorically aimed across the table to number two. Right to the heart of things, just diving on it. I like it. Number two smiles and nods his head. He likes it too. Yes, says Scratch. Allow me to elucidate. It's a tragic story, truth be told. So we'll proceed with the condensed version. He pauses for a moment, pretending deep thought. Or better yet, he suggests, let's make a game of it. Something so dark and horrible, right? Maybe make it go down easier. He receives no reply from us. It's a guessing game, okay? Who here, besides number two and myself, obviously, words leaking through his grin, is a cold-blooded killer? The three of us look at one another, batoning a confused expression. I'll spare you the suspense. And speaking in a tone as though I'd just won a prize. It's Irem! Number two puts his hands up and turns my way in fake surprise. What? This guy? I know, says Scratch, big drama in his voice. Me too. Never would have thought. But who else, besides a murderer, I mean, leaves bloody shoe prints in the center of a crime scene? Am I right? Fingerprints all over. Right? My mind recalls the gooshing sound of Sammy's blood beneath my flip-flop. My dropping his game controller, the wheels of his chair spinning out. Continuing in his lion's, tiger's, and bear's voice, turning to me, then Sia, then Dell. A murderer, a vandal, and her hired muscle? We are in the midst of some bad, bad company, number two. I'm scared, number two shivers. Sia's finished listening. What do you want? Straightforward and dry. Remy obviously didn't do that. I obviously did. She makes her hands plainly visible, 
And Dell very obviously hasn't done anything at all, ever. So what are we doing here? Do you or do you not know what happened to our friends? Another straight shooter, Scrotch replies. Y'all really are a serious bunch. Seems like you're the only timid one here, Iram. I see myself split, shrunken, and reversed inside the black of his sunglasses. Dell unwraps another straw and repeats the steps. I watch my little self blink back at me from the shiny lens. None of this seems real. You're going to come with us, Scrotch says. Do you hear me now? I'm using my serious voice. And he is. Can you tell the difference? I use this voice when I mean it. We're all going to leave here together, and by the end of the afternoon, every bit of this story will be sorted out and concluded. He lifts his sunglasses. His irises are silver blue and exactly as serious as his voice. Now act like you understand me and walk. Number two, if you please. Number two stands and waits as I slide out behind him. Scratch does the same, waiting for Dell and Sia. The tone has shifted completely. With number two in front and Agent Scratch behind, we're led out of the restaurant and delivered to the back seat of their car. This won't take long. Agent Scratch waits for us to get in. As long as you behave. And we do. A profoundly poor decision. But if nothing else, we're not bored. Miri moved from the bed to the bathroom. Crimson hair pulled back in a ponytail, a few loose strands, wearing her favorite sleepy shirt with the collar ripped out, cute sleepy shorts, barefoot. My very favorite version of a perfect Miri. She found herself in the mirror. Written in dry erase marker in the upper left corner, I love you. Written across the bottom, ending in the lower right side. You're everything to me. She'd put it there for me to find during my morning routine the first week we moved in together. Something close to half my writing and half hers by this point. I'd traced back over it many times through the years, so it would never leave me. Is there any uniformity, I wonder? Any standard sentiment shared by those who know they're leaving? Maybe an arrival at peace? Peace like a slow fog that everything else just sinks away into? Maybe a smoldering inside of the heart that's finally given up? A cradle filled with the embers of everything you love, glowing in a whisper, barely warmer than breath? Maybe feelings like this, but probably not. Probably something much less poetic, Gray skies, no plans, and a broken fridge. Everyday nothings. The poetry is in the exit. Last goodbyes, I know now, are the heaviest feathers to keep. They are floating reminders, bright and leaden, that you can never catch up to, that you drift with and chase, blown there and back again by all the things you cannot forget. Last goodbyes are an echo that you will forever be one step behind. I love you. You're everything to me. Miri blinked at the girl framed inside those promises. 
She stared into her eyes. Emerald and emerald, sad and bright. With the thumb of her left hand, she wiped away the eye and wiped away the love. Using her right, she wiped across the bottom of the mirror, leaving only the last word. Only you and me left. Miri Emma brought her face to the glass and she breathed, warm and full of life. Then again, fogging the mirror. In the blur of her reflection, using her goddess hand, fingertip to glass, she left one word. A last goodbye between you and me. Faint and fading, but there. Miri exited the bathroom and returned to bed. Where are we going? I ask. But Scrotch and number two stay silent. The city swipes itself by afternoon light across the windshield and darkens to smaller denominators in the tint of their sunglasses. Quick shadows scroll through the car ten miles over the speed limit. There's something exhilarating about the trouble we're in, whatever it may be, and I can tell Sia feels it too. I find myself wishing Miri were in the car. This would be good for her. I try to think of something to tell on her about. Some lie to snitch her into this situation with the rest of us. But I decide to keep quiet. It's only when number two turns the volume up that I notice the radio has been on. A contemporary praise and worship song for the twins blends with the road noise. Twice the size, two times the eyes. You see me. Oh, you see me. Two heads of hair, one spirit shared. My heart believes, my heart receives thee. Dell's mouthing along with the lyrics, and moved by the ascended volume, lifts a hand of praise in the air. Sitting in the back seat between Sia and me, lip-syncing with his eye closed, Dell sways back and forth, nudging his shoulders into ours. For a moment, my body unconsciously slow dances along with his. It's weird, and I quit. Agent Scratch says, turn that off, then reaches forward and does it himself. In the quiet of the car, the energy in the front seat grows loud. I can feel it building, becoming thick. My intuition palpates the inside of Scratch's head and finds every angle to be sharp. Everything about him is screamingly solemn. He's focusing, preparing, putting himself in the kind of space he needs to be in to do what he's about to do. And for the first time that afternoon, I become acutely aware of how frightened I should be. Fear cracks through me like a whip. I understand. I don't believe it, but I know it. These men are going to kill us. The road ahead folds the city up and tucks it into the sun-bleached slant of the back window. Four lanes became two, and the landscape spreads open. We're being taken someplace where other people are not, someplace where no one will see, where no one will come looking. I sense the emergency lights come on inside Sia's head. Our hands touch in a way that acknowledges everything. Dell isn't there yet. Options of outs and escapes, any and all flicker like hummingbird hearts through our scared minds. 
jump and roll, steal their guns, strangle them from behind, slit their throats, wreck the car. On the count of three. One, two. I'll need to pee soon. Dell's words are a marshmallow hardly able to fit inside the car, an inflated poof of too sweetness. I watch to see if there's any shift in Scratch, if innocence like this might have some effect. None. His steel only firms and reaffirms, and that's it. His cell phone beeps a text signal. He gives a quick glance. Still good? asks number two. Scratch returns his phone to the console. Both hands on the wheel, eyes on the road. He gives a sharp nod and keeps driving. Past Purple Pond, deeper into the hills and left onto some secret of a service road I'd never noticed before. We park in front of a thin patch of trees, a hinted prelude to the density of the forest's edge visible now in the distance. Beyond the tree line, a sunset is melting into the mountains, skewering its colors on sharp, black peaks. One jagged angle rises higher than the rest, outlined in deep purple by the full moon brightening to life just above it. I can picture the ocean on the other side, and I wonder, had I agreed, if Miri and I would have gotten that far by now. The engine cuts, seat belts unclip, doors open, and the drama enters its next act. The two of them aren't keeping any secrets. They aren't teasing us into this. Agent Scratch and number two herd us out of the car by the spitting end of their guns, flipping them casually in the direction we're meant to proceed. I'm mute with fear. My face is a numbed blood rush. There's your mystery, Scratch tells us. Solved. A little parting gift to your peace of minds. The end of his gun indicates three mounds in front of us. Three body-length bulbs of raised earth. My apologies, Iram. Seems you were innocent after all. Sia and Del and I swallow the sight of each grave like three rocks into our ribs. And in slow turn, travel our eyes past them to a much larger hole. Its insides rest in an excavated pile beside waiting to be shoveled back on top of whatever gets planted. C is about to do something. I can see it in her body, tense and trying to hide its intent. Make a run for it, or go for one of their guns, one or the other. I feel proud of her for both, and positive that neither will work. But it's Dell who makes the first move. He lowers himself atop the middle grave and passes his eye between it and the others, how come two of them look old? His question comes calm and curious. Who's in which one? How come one grave looks new and the other two look old? I hadn't noticed, but he's right. The two piles left and right of center look like they could be years old. The middle one obviously is not. Fresh dirt, nothing growing on it. Looking back to our captors, Tell me, please, requests Dell. Begrudged generosity, Scratch answers. One of your friends was harder to find than the others, but the math works out the same. Always does. Then, aiming his gun, steady with intent, 
Get on your knees, Dell. Facing me. Number two covers Sia and me. I'm paralyzed. Sia's still trying to convince her body to do something, and Dell is a dunced martyr. He looks straight at Agent Scrotch, lowers to one knee, and holds his stare. The air between them gobbles seconds in slow motion as, out of what my best guess would call respect, Scrotch removes his sunglasses. He raises the gun to Dell's forehead, touching the skin. Neither blinks. Scratch's finger edges back farther. And then suddenly, it happens. Huge now, and glowing bright white, the moon comes to life above the mountains. Rattling, vibrating, loud. We watch it wobble in the night sky. A constrained thrashing, almost as if trying to shake itself loose. It begins to turn spinning the shadows of its surface round and round, spinning faster, shaking more and more violently. The air hums and compresses. It feels like a paint shaker singing against my skull. The fever pitch peaks and then it stops. Inside a deafening emptiness, the moon falls from the sky. It slides away, erased, gone. The world around us immediately darkens to one uniform shadow. My brain unthreads to the sight. The right wires aren't touching anymore. There is no proper place to put this, and my thoughts choke on it. Strotch lowers his gun, caught inside this miscalculation with the rest of us. A universe is erasing its physics. A phone is ringing. The sound seems to go on forever. The ringing stops and then starts again. His eyes still sunk in the hole where a moon used to be. Scratch brings the phone to his face. A voice says something on the other end. No response. He hangs up and returns the square to his pocket. Number two is an unraveling mess, mute with too much to say. His eyes are begging Scratch to help, to please explain this to him. Scratch holsters his gun and walks to the car. Number two follows. Sia and Dell and I don't move, have no plans to. Headlights come on, a synthetic stuffing into the moonless black. The engine starts. A three-point turn lands the car in front of us. A window rolls down and a voice comes out of it. We're done here. You can ride home or you can walk. Minds gutted as the night sky above. We open the door and get in.